Friends, I want to invite you guys to take your Bibles and turn over to John's Gospel, chapter 21. John chapter 21 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we've provided some for you within arm's reach, hopefully. We'd love for you not just to use that today, as helpful as it's going to be to you today. We'd love for you not just to use it today. We want you to take it with you. Please take it with you as our gift to you and give us the chance to talk to you later about what you'll read there and what you'll hear this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 21 as the, uh, the second of a two-week mini-series in which we're considering here at Easter time the resurrection appearances of Jesus, who after he was killed and came back to life, met with his friends in stories that are recorded for us so that we could learn what we can expect if we meet the resurrected Jesus. Last week, uh, we considered the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for those who doubt him. We looked at how he approached those in the very, this very story who didn't really buy it and at the sensitivity and care that he showed to them in overcoming their doubts. And this morning, we'll look at how the resurrected Jesus relates to those who have sinned against him, to those who have failed spectacularly and undeniably and irreversibly. How does the resurrected Jesus relate to them? There's a couple reasons uh, why we want to take a close look at the story that we're going to consider this morning. Uh, One of those reasons is, if you're not familiar with Christianity, it could be that you got the wrong idea about how Jesus relates to sinners. It could be, if you're not familiar with Christianity, that you don't have the right idea about how he approaches people who've messed up, people who've broken the rules, people who've gotten it wrong, even people who have come against him. It could be you got the wrong idea from folks who've claimed to be Christians, People who, who, who claim to speak for Jesus but have been among the most vindictive or condescending or dismissive of you or others that you've ever seen. That's possible. It's also possible that you've picked up your notion of what Christians are like from popular culture where the picture of us is, is really a, f- a far from pretty one. Maybe you had to read in high school or in college Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. When you think of Christianity, maybe you think of that harsh and unforgiving band of New England Puritans who found a woman giving birth out of wedlock, publicly shamed her and forced her to live for all of her days with a big scarlet letter A attached to her chest. A for adulteress. That's who she was. That's all she would ever be to them. Maybe when when you think Christianity, you think about the scarlet letter. (laughs) Maybe you fear that's what we're like. And if that's what you're bringing to this time together this morning, I hope that the Bible this morning is going to reshape your understanding of Jesus and of his church. But that isn't the only reason we wanted to take time with this story. I do hope and pray that it will be for your benefit if you're evaluating Christianity today. We want you to know what you can expect from Jesus if you come to him. But this story is also of immense encouragement to those of us who already claim Christ as our only hope. We need to look at this story because we still struggle with shame over sin. We still struggle with regret over our past. We'll still deal with nagging questions about whether someone who's failed like I've failed can have a future that isn't completely ruined by my past. And no matter how many times we Christians hear the good news about Jesus and his grace towards sinners, no matter how many times we hear it, we still struggle to believe it. And we need to come over it again and again and again and again. That's what we're going to do this morning by taking a slow walk through one of my absolute favorite moments in all of the Bible. We're going to take a slow walk through a scene where Jesus, soon after he's risen from the dead, meets with Peter. 
one of his closest friends, one of his staunchest allies, who in the moment of his deepest need abandoned him and denied that he even knew him. I want to begin by reading the few verses that we're going to consider this morning. I want to ask you, please, to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from John chapter 21, picking up in verse 15, and read through verse 19. This is the word of the Lord to us. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and to walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Three points for us this morning from this story of Jesus and Peter. Point number one is this. There is no one. The resurrected Jesus cannot restore. There is no one the resurrected Jesus cannot restore. These verses that we've that we've just read pick up in the middle of a of a morning Jesus spent with his disciples after his resurrection. He's just served them breakfast when he narrows his focus into Peter and asks him the same question three times. Did you notice that? Three times he asks them, Do you love me, Peter? And maybe when you first came over these verses, at a first and quick glance, you hear this exchange and think, Jesus is clearly shaming Peter here. Every time Peter says, yes, I love you, Jesus is asking the same question all over again. It's like like Jesus is calling his bluff and saying, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. Peter, you talk a big game. But that doesn't mean... That doesn't mean you'll follow through. And Jesus is doing all this in front of Peter's friends. I mean, it's it's public. And read like that, read with a quick pass, at a a quick glance, it seems like what what we've stumbled into is just a super awkward scene. One that we cringe at and want to just want to have it be over quickly. This is the type of scene in a sitcom you just skip over, maybe, if you don't like social awkwardness. It's, it's, it's awkward. But, but here's the thing, friends. Zoomed out a bit beyond the four verses or the few verses that we read. Zoomed out to the larger perspective of what John has been doing in this story. Zoomed out to include what happened just a couple of chapters earlier. We can see that Jesus is not. 
He's not shaming Peter here. He's forgiving Peter. He's not attaching that scarlet letter in front of all of his friends. He's taking that letter off. And if he can do that for Peter, he can do that for anybody, including you, no matter what you've done. So let me give you some backstory. Uh, Let me give you some backstory and then return to this scene to feel the full power and weight that John means for us to feel. Will you come with me back a little bit? A couple chapters earlier before this, in John chapter 18, there's a scene that mirrors this one remarkably. It's just clear that that's what John means for us to see. He's seeing for us in John 21 a kind of recreation of a scene that took place back in chapter 18 in a moment of immense dramatic power that John crafted. There in chapter 18, John is giving us two figures. The whole chapter follows the action of two figures, Jesus and Peter. And like a great film director, he swings his camera from one, then swings his camera back to the other, then swings his camera back to the first, and then swings his camera back to the other to show us the contrast between the courage of Jesus and the cowardice of Peter when rubber meets road. The action starts with Jesus. John zooms in on him. Jesus is standing before the most powerful men in Judaism at that time. And they are asking him to give an account of things that he said about who he is and what he's come to do. The claims that he's made, he knows exactly what they mean. He meant for them to be provocative and shocking. He meant to be claiming what he claimed. That he represents God's work in the world. That if you want life with God, you must believe in Jesus. That there's no other way to the Father except through him. That's what he said. He's standing by it even as the questions grow more and more intense. Then the the action switches over to Peter. Peter has come as far as he was able. He couldn't come into the courtyard, where, or rather into the the, the part of the house where where, where Jesus is being questioned. So he's, he's left out in this courtyard area next to what John tells us was a charcoal fire. A fire is burning and Peter is among many others standing there as the action goes on inside the house where Jesus is. As he stands near this fire, someone in that firelight recognizes Peter and asks him, You aren't one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter answered, No, I'm not. He's come close enough to Jesus to keep a distant eye on what's going on, but not so close that he might be confused for one of this man's followers. The camera swings back to Jesus again. The interrogation gets more and more intense. There's no question where this is headed, and Jesus knows where it's headed. John's made it clear up to this point. He orchestrated the whole thing. Jesus knows he'll die because of the confession he makes before these men. But he stands by everything he's ever said about who he is and what he's come to do. The camera swings back to Peter, back by that fire. Two more times, Peter is asked by those who recognize him, did I not see you with him? And two more times, Peter says, no, absolutely not. I don't know the man. And then the camera leaves Peter for good and switches back to Jesus And stays with Jesus for his confession before Pilate, for his flogging, for the crown of thorns beaten into his head, for his body nailed to a cross, for his limbs broken and his side pierced and his last breath breathed. And you can imagine, only imagine the emotional weight that this betrayal must have been on Peter from that moment forward. From the time the camera leaves him, we don't know where he goes. But he goes away as a man who knows exactly what he's done. 
What must it have been like for Peter to hear that next morning what had happened to Jesus after he left him? The brutality of his execution. The agony of it. The fact that he faced it nearly alone because Peter and the other disciples abandoned him. What must survivor's guilt feel like to a close friend who's turned his back at the crucial moment? And imagine the mixed emotions Peter must have felt on hearing the news that Jesus is alive again. Friends see Jesus before Peter does. They report to him. What must he have felt? I mean, and on, one, on one level, this is amazing news. Hope restored. But on another level, this man now back to life is the man who knows exactly what Peter's done. He might have been able to hide himself from his friends. He could not hide what he's done from Jesus. And now the one who sees all things and knows exactly what happened is alive. What will he say? What will he do? In the verses just before the ones we read this morning, in chapter 21, Jesus appears on shore as his disciples, including Peter, are out fishing. He calls them in to join him for breakfast, and Peter sees him from the boat over there on the shore, and he's the first to know who that man is. He dives headlong into the water and swims to Jesus rather than waiting on the boat to arrive. He is a man eaten up with unfinished business, and it just can't wait. When he reaches shore, verse 9 of chapter 21 tells us that what he found when he got there was a charcoal fire set in place. Jesus is more than feeding them breakfast. Jesus, by this fireside, is recreating the scene of Peter's worst night. What must the smell of those coals brought back for him? It's a powerful smell, isn't it? And smell is a link to memory, isn't it? Where does that smell take you? It takes me to my grandparents' fireplace. It takes me to the cabin in the mountains that we spent our vacations in as a kid. It takes me now to the, my backyard where we burn everything back there, including most of our marshmallows. That smell is a trigger for memory. What did Peter feel when he smelled that fire on that shore? Standing next to this fire, Jesus gives Peter three opportunities to affirm his love for him. And no, it wasn't easy. We're told that even grieved Peter. There was pain in reliving and acknowledging the truth in what he'd done. But friends, this scene is not about shame. This scene is about redemption and healing. This is Jesus forgiving Peter and restoring him in front of all of his friends so that they would know and so that we would know the gentleness we can expect from Jesus when we come to him with what we've done wrong. Just one chapter earlier in chapter 20, John summed up the whole purpose of this gospel, why he wrote every story and recorded every word that he did. He told us there, That even though Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which aren't written in this book, these ones I wrote down, every one of them, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John chapter 20, verse 31. That seems like a great place to end this book. That seems like the crescendo, the moment where he ought to just exit and, and run the presses and move on. Why does John tack this story onto the end of a gospel that felt complete a chapter earlier? 
he tacks this story on because it's not good news that this Christ lives. And this is no Christ that you can believe in for life unless you know how this Christ feels about sinners who come to him for restoration. And now you know. You are not further from him than Peter was. To become a Christian means believing what John has written, but not just believing that it all happened in history. It it means believing that this man who died and rose again died and rose again for you. It means acknowledging your sin against him, yeah, but also believing that his power and willingness to forgive sinners doesn't stop short of you and your sin. There is no one the resurrected Jesus cannot restore. That's why this story is here. You can get in on this too, if you will. And the news is even better than this, friends. Point number one is, there is no one the resurrected Jesus cannot restore. Point number two is, there is no one the resurrected Jesus cannot use. There is no one the resurrected Jesus cannot use. Peter is not just restored, not just let off the hook, but put back into the game. He's given a useful job. Did you notice this? Each time Peter affirms his love for Jesus, Jesus gives Peter a task. Feed my lambs, Jesus said. Tend my sheep, Jesus said. Feed my sheep. And if we take Jesus literally here, it might sound like, well, Peter, you know, you were on the fast track to basically run this whole show. You were in the executive training program. You were about to have an important leadership role in this church that I'm building, but, but you failed me. So now I'm going to start you back out at the, the barnyard level. And you show me that you can be faithful in shoveling food in to the pen and shoveling manure out of it. And maybe over time, if you can prove yourself in that setting, you can climb your way back up the ladder into actual usefulness. If we took Jesus literally, that's how we might read this assignment that he gives to Peter. But, But friends, this is not the first time that Jesus has talked about shepherding in this gospel. He's used this image before. In John chapter 10, this task that he gives to Peter is the task that he takes on to himself as the key to his mission, his work here in the world. In John chapter 10, this is what Jesus says of himself. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who doesn't own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. That's Jesus describing his life's work. And now here in John 21, Jesus looks at Peter the man who denied him when the going got tough and gives his life work over to Peter. Jesus' sheep are so precious to him that he gave his life up for them. He came precisely to do that. That's how much they mean to him. And now he's looking at this man of all men, this one who caved under pressure, This man who most leaders would see as damaged goods, not worthy of trust with anything valuable. And Jesus is saying to him, this treasure, 
that I purchased with my own blood here. You feed them. You tend them. You feed them. This is like asking somebody to take care of your plants while you're out of town only to come back and find them dry and withered the next time you go out of town asking to keep your kids for you. Maybe don't push that one too far. I guess there's probably some negligent parenting somewhere in that analogy. But you get the point. You take something that, 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 that actually is pretty low stakes and, and then you, they fail and, and you give them something that there, there, there are no higher stakes than this to Jesus. So what, what, what we're supposed to see here, what John wants us to see, is that part of forgiveness is full restoration. That includes a job to do. That includes a new future, one not defined by the past. Those failures won't keep Peter from what Jesus wants for him. It's a sign or a seal of the forgiveness that's been offered here. It's as if Jesus is saying, you are not defined by your worst moment. I saw it. I forgave it. I died so that I could, and now I'm over it, and I've got a job for you. Can you see the power for us in what Jesus has done here? I want you to see two things. Jesus wants to use you. Do not believe the lie that shame will tell you. Shame, which is a great weapon of the evil one, would convince you to give up, to not even try again. That the sins of your past have already ruined any chance you've got at a useful future. You, friend, are not damaged goods. It's just not true. Earlier this week, I was talking to a pastor friend about uh, some friends he was talking to who just couldn't believe that there would be a place for them in the church. The way they put it to him was, you know, I, I know that I'm not great at football, so the Titans won't have any interest in me. I, my baseball skills peaked as a 12-year-old. The, the Braves are not going to be calling anytime soon, and and I've made a mess of my life. Why would Jesus want me on his team? And for them, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be part of a church is to be kind of a professional good guy. But the church is no team of professionals who earned a spot on the field. We are, one of my, my, one of my favorite metaphors comes from a book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. That's what we are. Not pros who earned our spot on the roster but instruments to be used by one who's qualified. We're people who need help, helping people who need help. I know you may not think you've got anything to offer, and in a way I'm not going to argue with you, except to say that that's entirely beside the point. It just doesn't matter what you have to offer. The key isn't the suitability of the tool, but the skill and the power of the one who, who's wielding it. I play a little golf. By, by a little golf, I mean like twice a year, maybe. I started out with a cheapo set of clubs that cost maybe a hundred bucks I don't know all in all in one and then a while a few years later got a, a nicer set for Christmas you know the kind that you can get from the store where they let you swing into that computer and figure out how long they need to be and like perfect it to your measurements and all that I probably don't need to tell you how much my four times per year game improved with those nicer clubs not a whole lot the club was not the problem it's the person using it I also probably don't need to tell you that if, if Dustin Johnson or Jordan Spieth took my cheapo clubs from Walmart and went out with them to Augusta, they could probably hit par. What matters is the one who uses the tool, not the tool itself. 
And Christ is risen from the dead. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. He's promised that he will be with us to the end of the age. And it's with this authority and this power that he sends us out now to make disciples, to tend his sheep, to invest in the spiritual health of the people he died to redeem. He can use anyone. He can use you. And the second thing I want you to know about that, friends, is that we need you. Not just can he use you. We in this church, we need you. We are an all-hands-on-deck situation here. There is no one who can't help out in the work of shepherding. We need what Jesus is going to do, do through you among us. And because we're not defined by our sins before Jesus, we're not defined by our sins here before one another either. Of course, we're going to have different skill sets. Of course, we're not all going to bring the same things to the table. Every member of the body is needed, though. And every single one of us, whatever else we may be called upon to do, is at the very least called upon to tend sheep. To feed those for whom Jesus died with the hope that they can't do without. The hope of forgiveness and redemption and life in Jesus. And friend, if you today are struggling with shame. And you can't escape those negative thought loops that just keep on going through you. One of the most important and practical strategies that you have at your disposal. Is to get out of your own head and into someone else's life. To, to do what you can do, Christ giving you strength to tend sheep. And to tell anyone who will listen that if Christ forgave you, he can forgive them too. Friends, there is no one that the resurrected Jesus cannot restore. There's no one that he cannot use. And I want to close with one more note for you. Don't worry, this is only going to take a couple minutes. One more thing about what Jesus says to Peter right here that you must know if you're evaluating Christianity this morning. Yes, he can use you. Yes, he will absolutely restore you. But, point three, there is nothing the resurrected Jesus cannot ask of you. There is nothing the resurrected Jesus cannot ask of you, friend. Did you see this ominous note struck in what Jesus says to Peter? I mean, even in the shepherd image, it's there. Jesus is a good shepherd, but what's good about him is that he laid down his life for the sheep. He was willing to go all the way. And now he's giving that role to Peter. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus, Jesus describes Peter's future for him. He says, you know what, when you were a young man, verse 18, you used to be able to go and do whatever you wanted to. You had freedom. You know, your body still worked great. You had options. You didn't have maybe as many responsibilities. You could dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted to. But there's a day coming when you're going to lose that freedom. When you'll be taken somewhere you don't want to go. When you'll be dressed and your arms stretched out whether you like it or not. And John tells us he's referring to, to how Peter would die. Church tradition backs this up. He gave his life as a follower of Jesus on a cross just like the one Jesus died upon. And in a way, Peter's road was unique and that's why he's highlighted here in this set of verses but in another way what Jesus asked of Peter is not unique at all in Luke's gospel Jesus says to anybody who's listening to him anyone who would consider following him if anyone would come after me Luke chapter 9 verse 23 let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me that's me, and that's you, if we would follow him. What you need to know is that 
following Jesus will cost you everything. Not because you won't enjoy anything good in your life. Christianity is not a kill joy. Far from that. But because if you choose to follow Jesus, there's no part of your life that's really yours. Where he has no claim on your allegiance. Jesus' claim reaches to every part of us, and it's costly. There are huge costs that many Christians have been asked to pay. Some have died as Jesus did. Some of our brothers and sisters around the world are facing that sort of death even today. Many, many others have lost their families over their commitment to Jesus, where loyalty to him means disloyalty to the family. And aside from huge and obvious costs like these, costs that not all of us will have to pay, there are admittedly some rules that come with following Jesus. Things that he said to do or not to do, things that please him or displease him, things that he said are good for us and good for others and things that are harmful and destructive. There are rules that come with this. And those rules won't always make sense to us. What he says is good won't always seem good to us. And Jesus' Jesus rules even extend into areas that we most often think of as our own where we're wired up by our whole culture to see some autonomy for ourselves. Areas like what we do with our money or our time or our ambitions or our sex lives. And Jesus comes into every one of these areas where we tend to see ourselves as autonomous and he says to us what he said to Peter, follow me. Why would you? Why not hold on to that that ability to, to, to walk where you want to walk and dress yourself as you want to dress, the, the, the freedom and independence of the young man. The only reason to follow him when it costs you everything that I know of is that Jesus died and rose again for you. When a resurrected man says, jump the reasonable response is, how high? And when that died then risen man puts barriers around your life, a man who would do that for you is not a man who's trying to hold you back. The great lie of the evil one is that his rules are meant to hamper my ability to flourish They're meant as a barrier to my happiness. I will do better on my own. But in the death and resurrection of Jesus, you have all the proof you need that whatever rules he gives you come from the same love that sent him to the cross. He is tending his flock. He is feeding his sheep. He is protecting you in ways you can't even fully understand. You can trust him with the costs that following him will bring because he died and he rose again for you. I guess the other way to say it is that the best reason to follow Jesus is love. Do you love me, Jesus asks. Will you trust me with your life? And that is the question for each of us. Let's pray to the Lord together now to give us this faith. Father, we know from our own experience how difficult it is for us to give up our autonomy and how difficult it can be for us to remember that we are not defined by our worst. Your word is a cool drink of water to one who is weary in a desert. Your cross is a rest that we cannot find anywhere else. And what we ask for now is the faith to trust in it. 
and the love to willingly give up ourselves to this Jesus who gave himself for us. We pray to you for this faith in Jesus' name. Amen.